Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to MedHeads, the show where we discuss topical issues from a biopsychosocial perspective. And today we have two great guests with us. Firstly, we've got Marie Eisma, who's a, a mental health social worker. And we have Ian Bunston, who is a community connection uh, officer in uh, Box Hill. So I'm just going to say hello to Marie first. Marie, do you want to say hello and describe your job role for the benefit of the audience? Hello, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm a clinical mental health social worker um, working in the sector for about 20 years. Um, with a big background sort of in drug and alcohol um, and certainly family therapy trained and seeing the impact of some of the more recent events and realising that there's a big need for some supports out there at the moment. There is, there is. And Ian, welcome Ian. Tell us a little bit about your role. Uh, Fergal, my position is what's called a community connector at Boxville Central Shopping Centre. Um, mm -hmm. It goes beyond the shopping centre to the city of Whitehorse but um, probably in a nutshell, um, my role has by and large been um, creating, initiating, developing um, purposeful social pursuits that I can engage people with. We're living in times more than ever before where people are disengaged and uh, particularly with the, the latest things that have been happening with the drought and uh, the bushfires and now this coronavirus, we need it more than ever before. So um, it's, uh, yeah, I've been, been very excited about this position. I've just been in it um, a little under a year now, and uh, but there's a lot that uh, has eventuated in that time. So Ian, you, I had the pleasure of listening to you talk about, I don't know, was it four months ago, six months ago? In and, October. Yeah, and I was really impressed by your presentation that you did on the, the importance and value of social connectedness. Can you tell us a few, give us a few words on that? What, what, what's your idea of the value and importance of social connectedness? Well, there's probably a number of things, Fergal. And in fact, you've helped me to enlighten my understanding of this as well, might I add. But... Um, then there's a number of issues that we're facing, as I already mentioned. And Hugh McKay, who's a sociologist who's like studied the social landscape for the last 50 years in this country, he uh, launched a book uh, at the beginning of 18 called Australia Reimagined. And it pointed out a number of things about um, people um, uh, in terms of our society, um, where we are facing challenges. But if you drilled it down to some of the really important and pertinent things, it's our um, disengagement and also mm -hmm. mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So that's been a driving force for me with regard to um, what's behind a lot of the activities, um, programs that I've been trying to develop. And then in my relationship with you and getting to know um, Carrington Health, yourself and Turning Point, and I'm becoming aware of your treatment and what you do with patients with regard to substance abuse and also mental health issues. There was just an amazing synergies between what you're doing and what I was doing. So in mm. terms of moving towards a partnership, um, of perhaps being a, a part of the whole uh, process of uh, supporting these people going through yeah. this, I could, my end, provide social meaningful pursuits that they could engage with. It would help um, towards or 
contribute towards their recovery. And it's something that you put pointed out very strongly to, to, to me, which has really encouraged me to pursue more of these pursuits for both. Yeah. So, but you, you've just mentioned a couple of things that I wanted to drill down on. So, you weren't always a community connectedness officer at Box Hill, were you? What was your role previously? Uh, well, I'm in semi-retirement now. Um, I was a principal and an active principal of school for many, many years. In it, so my my background's in education. So yeah. it's been very much leading a um, a school community. So right. having finished in that that chapter of my life, I now find myself not not leading a, a shopping centre community, but being integrally um, uh, involved in that that community by helping provide, uh, as I've said, pursuits that can connect people. And there's a whole range of those um, things that we've been doing, uh, which I'm happy yeah. to to unpack um, as we go along. Yeah, with, um, we will, we will. But, but you, you've identified social disconnectedness as a huge driver for social misery, basically, haven't you? Correct. And I think even it was uh, Swinburne uh, Institute of Technology released a really important study just the other year, um, which was really um, outlining very, very much in line what Hugh McKay was saying about um, this, this issue of loneliness. Where yeah. more, I mean, that is one of the major configurations of households in this days, mm. day and age, the growing single person households. Um, yeah. You know, um, it's. Uh, I mean, the reports out as well as you would know that it's um, it's a huge factor contributing towards earlier death. Loneliness is a key thing, and so Absolutely. therefore, we need to do our best to address that by reconnecting people in ways that they feel comfortable, um, the ways that they can feel um, honest and trustworthy relationships and connections. And I really yeah. believe that's paramount um, for our society today. So I, I completely agree with you. I mean, you know, loneliness has been identified as a, as a, there's no other way of saying it. It's a killer. It's as lethal as heart disease in certain situations. So Marie, I mean, have, what we've spoken about, does that resonate with you in any way, Marie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, there was something that I stumbled across some research that said, yeah, you can be doing your, drinking your two litres of water and, you know, keeping your low um, sugar diets and, and doing your, you know, 60 minutes of, physical activity or, you know, 10,000 steps per day. But if you are not socially connected, then so much of that just goes by the wayside. Yeah. So how do you see in your clinical practice, Marie, a loss of social connectedness? How does that impact upon upon the people that you see? What effect does it have? Major, major depression, major anxiety. Um, You know, I was only having supervision the other day about this, where that for us to have a sense of self, we only have a sense of self that's derived by connections with other people. Otherwise, we have no sense of who we are. That's an interesting point. Say that again. If we, we have, we make sense of who we are based on our connections and interconnectedness with other people. So there's no such thing as an existential personal identity. Is that what you're saying? Well... We, I just know that clients don't, you know, we have a sense of who we are based on our, you know, our socialization, the way we grow up in our families, you know, it's through our modeling, through our interconnection with people that we know what's appropriate conduct and what's not appropriate conduct. We can't learn these skills in isolation, but in response to sort of your question, mental health, if, if people are not having a sense of social connectedness, they are at major risk for... I personally seen um, seeking refuge in, in substances myself, 
I've certainly seen people ending up in major depressive episodes. And for some people, and, you know, if you are not getting enough um, social stimulation, I've seen people literally become quite, um, you know, psychotic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a classic yeah. example, and you would know this, and anyone else who does mental health, you know, the, the the criteria that people now use to actually put people in seclusion has to be incredibly, um, imp- you know, incredibly... Um, the threshold's uh, very high, isn't it? it? You cannot just dump people yeah. in seclusion. Yeah. yeah. Um, because we know that that just makes people's mental health 100 times worse. And we, so, also know um, that, we also know that seclusion and exclusion from society actually can trigger psychosis, you know, in, in very extreme cases. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What was so, that movie um, with Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks did a movie where he was cast away. Cast away. Remember, when he, remember the he movie created, Cast Away? He became psychotic, didn't he, because he was so alone. Yeah, he created that, nep- that basketball. That, but yeah, he, he created that persona. Or the ne- yeah. netball, yeah, or yeah, a soccer yeah. ball that he actually ended yeah. up having. It created another, ex- yeah. another being, for a better set yeah. of words. Yeah, yeah. I often thought that was a very good um, demonstration or exposition of isolation causing psychosis. Absolutely. Yeah. So going back to Ian, um, you're involved in, in, a, in a lot of community projects that uh, are aimed at improving the social connectedness of the people around you and in your workplace. Why, why were you employed in that role, do you think? Um, it, it, it's interesting. What's in, it for, um, what's in it for Box Hill? Uh, yes, yes. Well, you see, it's a joint, just to give you the context, um, it's a, a joint partnership between um, a not-for-profit Chorus Connect organisation that employ me with... Um, Box Hill Central, um, which is owned by the company Vicinity. Okay, so yeah. it's been a partnership. I, I, with regard to Chorus, their their view is that, or their vision is that they want to see more vibrant and connected communities where individuals, families, organisations flourish better. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. giving them a, a really strong sense of hope in the future. There's a lot of trust, as we know, that's been lost in our society over recent times. I think that's pretty obvious. I don't need to you know, talk about all of those royal commissions that we've had. Um, with vicinity, it was interesting when I came on board, um, the main drivers that we set up were things such as helping to reduce the, the level of um, crime within the centre, <laughs> which was interesting. That's an as interesting is point. also Yes. Which was also so let me the, just stop you there. I, I find yeah. that fascinating. So, so they felt that social connectedness in the community would reduce crime. Is that is that what you're saying? Um, yes, because um, people often they would they view that people who were getting involved in those types of activities. It was basically driven by the fact that they didn't have purposeful pursuits in their life, which then about in turn built self esteem. Uh, viability in what I'm contributing towards society. So um, I I think that they did see that. Another one of the drivers too, Fergal, was about increasing the perception of safety within the centre. So so there was, uh, I was really having to mesh um, the the vision of Chorus Connect with with vicinity. And that led me to working with a whole range of different groups. Um, Perhaps I can give one example um, is, Vic Pohl have been absolutely magnificent, the Victorian Police Force. And may, may I even just hold up one of our little posters here? I can show you this here. This is what we do. 
practices and you can see that this, this won't be for all and maybe not for some of your patients. <laughs> coffee with a cup. Coffee with a cup. <laughs> we we run this once once a month. Um, it's in recess just at the moment, but we hold that in the centre mall, right in the very public space. And um, anyone, it's, it's advertised locally. It's also advertised through Neighbourhood Watch and, and also through the Victorian Police Force. They send a number of their police officers in as with their PSOs. And yeah. we sit down in the food court and um, we're tables and chairs, very conducive for people to sit, have a free coffee and then connect. You know, now it's about building respectful relationships and also, also understanding our legal enforcement officers in this place and not and not to be feared they're good people who want to support us even though at times we hear to the to the averse of that but by and large they're there to support us but just to give you some examples um some of the conversations that i used to hear would be about say pending court cases and the understanding of you know how i should react my son's had a driving offense what should i do there there was one um some grandparents that had brought their grandchildren in for the morning and they were sitting down having their little tiny mochaccinos or whatever you call them and they're talking about you know should i be wearing bike helmets or where do i ride my bicycle mm. so you know there's all these types of you know conversations that were going on but by and large building respectful relationships so that's yeah. been really really um a well patronized yeah. event each month it's been great yeah so Marie, what do you think about coffee with a cup? And moreover, what do you think about purposeful activity, social connectedness, reducing crime? What's your take on that, Marie? What, oh. Why would that be the, me what's the mechanism behind that, do you reckon? Oh, I can absolutely appreciate that if people have a sense of purpose um, and a people of a commitment or a, or a desire to work to something that's seen as meaningful, conducive. You know, I think, look, I don't want to generalize, but I and you'd know this with clients in in rehab and you know people when, when people have a sense of connecting with their their inherent gift or who or, or, or something that actually inspires and enlivens that can be such a catalyst for change um so when people so are actually you, purposeful let me stop you there Maria, yeah. can i just stop you there what's an inherent gift well i when I work with clients, like for me, I like to sit there and think about things that light them up. Like if, you know, I might say to a client, because some people will come and say, look, I don't know, I don't know where I want to go. I don't know what I want to do. Sometimes um, people will have been doing a, a role or an occupation that they took on to, you know, um, because parents wanted them to, or because they felt that if they didn't do this, then, um, you know, but, but sometimes people really, part of their their suffering has actually been because they've been pursuing something that never lit, lit them up in the first place. So, you right. know, without going down the whole road around, you know, terms such as individuation and stuff like that, which is... Well, why don't we? <laughs> well, we can, but I mean, let's, essentially... Let's okay, so one of the things I'll often ask clients is to say to them, you know, what what is something that you could talk to talk to about for hours on end that you know so much about you know and if they still look at me blankly i'll say you know what books have you got on your bedside table you are currently reading now or what you know if someone was to scan your bookshelf collection what what would be some of the common themes or some of the common trends in the in the stuff that you've read you know you, you can feel people i don't know whether other people can relate to this but you can feel the oh, energy I do personally 
Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, you know, when I visit people's houses, I love looking at their bookshelves. But it's, yeah. it's a lot. But it's that, in this day and age of Kindles, it's a lot more difficult. But I love looking at people's bookshelves. Uh, Ian, are you a bookshelf voyeur? Um, in fact, over recent times, um, and I think I'm linking in with what you're saying, Fergal, um, my reading schedule has gone right up. There's more time to do it. In fact, I was in a dinner the other day at uh, Eastland, and uh, they said business was right up there. People are buying up big time on books, which I think is great. But I, I do um, value reading biographies about people. Like one book that I have read, and I don't have shares in this, by the way, okay, but um, there's a guy called um, Hugh Van Cullenberg who wrote the book uh, Resilience. Now, he's in schools, he's in sporting clubs and so forth, and he's got an acronym that he really pushes. It's GEM which stands for gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. It's things like that. So I found that quite inspirational um, to read, as I've already mentioned with, with regard to Hugh McKay and getting a, an understanding of the psyche of the way Australians think and behave and predictions for the future. I find them really, really helpful. Currently at the moment, I'm reading a book, a biography by Mike Willisey and about his journey. Now, I know he recently passed away last year, but it's an incredible story partway through it. I find them inspirational. I find it, it's just great to journey with people along, you know, what they've found in life and the way they've addressed some of the issues that they've been confronted by. Yeah, yeah, you touched on the word resilience. I mean, for me, uh, as, as a clinician, resilience is, or a lack of resilience, is one of the key features that I see in patients with substance use disorders. So, Marie, what do you think about resilience? And going going back to social connectedness, can social connectedness improve resilience? Well, you know, like like you know, when we're talking about reading biographies and stuff like that, um, you know, there is an energy when someone is on purpose in their life when they do something where they're you know they may have any you know i'm a big believer in multiple intelligences i've done a lot of work with with people and their multiple intelligences and when we can channel our um, multiple intelligences the things the gifts that come to us quite naturally um i think there is a there is a, a birthing of um inspiration that comes from people you know when you see people who are on purpose when they're on mission when they're on target they light up there's an energy there is there is an energy people actually just naturally are drawn to them like moths to light um and in response yeah. to resilience i think and i don't want to i don't want to generalize here but i i'm also conscious that sometimes we have become so adverse to people suffering like I've, I've seen and I work in schools, so I sometimes see where there's a fine line between allowing people to develop some backbone, if I can use the word respectfully, um, mm. and in, in connection with that is some resilience. Sometimes, you know, life isn't just a, a continual party. We do have to know the dark and the light. We do have to know some despair before we can know the opposite. So, Marie, tell, tell me, you really do think that to appreciate joy you have to know suffering. Isn't that a bit biblical? Quite possibly. But I mean, if you think about, um, you know, a lot of the dualisms that exist, you know, we can only know one, you know, how can we know, how can, know, how, how can we know what true happiness is if we don't know sadness? How can we know what the opposite to fear is until we actually can experience peace? Well, there are those that would say that, that, suffering is not the birthright of humanity and that 
you know, the, 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 you, you know, suffering for me involves the descent into substance misuse. And there are those that would say that if, if there is no need to suffer, there is no need to know substance misuse to actually appreciate life. I mean, that, that, you know, there are those who would fundamentally disagree with you, I suppose. Quite possibly. What do you, what do you, what do you think, Ian? Um, well, I'm thinking of you in your role, um, Fergal. Um, I would imagine, and the same with Marie as well, you would experience seeing a lot of people suffering. Um, and um, in our own lives, I'm sure that we've all had points of uh, difficulty where we've suffered as well. But there'd be different levels of suffering. So um, but doesn't mean that necessarily I um, have to experience fully those terrible levels of what some people suffer because I guess I bring into play that level of empathy. Even though um, I can't fully experience all that they've suffered, I do try to imagine what their suffering must be like. I think that's quite a driving force be behind me. Um, having done a little bit of study, you know, I think it's called the area of theodicy, which is like the study of suffering, which probably has a bit of a biblical connection there, but, but it, it does define, it can define our life because of, it sets up that comparative element. Um, but um, I think it's in this day and age, I think we all need to be showing that sense of community, but with that empathy with one another. There was, as an example, like um, uh, there's, you know, a number of elderly ladies that just live in my street here. Um, you know, um, it's a simple thing just to go knock on their door and ask them that question, are you okay? Can we help it or support you in some way? Because my empathy is, is that they're, they've got challenges being at their age and getting in, getting out, all that type of thing. But I think that's been, been a bit of a message. That's a good story message going across our society at the moment. Every now and then with our news bulletins, we'll get some of those stories that are coming through in amongst all of the, the terribleness that's going on with the coronavirus. So, so I think that that's, you know, trying to be positive in how we respond in this day and age. So are you saying then that your personal experience of suffering has created within you an empathy which then allows you to care for your wider community? Is that, is that, am I following that train of thought? Correct. Okay, so, okay. Tell us a few, a few of the other projects that you're doing then in terms of the way that you help your wider community and how do you feel it has an impact on, on, on people and, and their suffering? Yeah. Um, well, I'll give you another example. And sorry that I've got this publicity. It's just that the vicinity <laughs> provide this. So I might as well just do it. Because you've got to have some visuals okay. in this type of thing. <laughs> this one is uh, the for whatever reason, I was standing in the shower one morning and this idea of a, a community choir came to my head. <laughs> and, and the long and short of it is we've been able to create this community choir that's been going since um, the uh, beginning of the fourth school term last year. Um, which has eventuated in about 25 to 30 members. Um, and already they've had about four different opportunities to perform. We're, we've got the, the uh, um, shopping centre, okay, the malls and the different places, which I've got um, uh, access to. So it means that we can do that type of thing. Um, and they're a terrific group of people, very eclectic, very, um, the age group is very, very wide. They've all got different backgrounds different ethnicities, different religions, whatever you want to say, but they're all coming together. All of them are a part of a WhatsApp group as well, which we've set up. So there's this communication that goes on during the week, um, as well as our rehearsals, because they rehearse weekly on a Tuesday morning. 
Um, but now that we've had the coronavirus and we've got to have the social distancing and all that type of stuff, our choir uh, master, uh, Lisa, she's actually been putting on the WhatsApp group short uh, video clips of what the songs are and the lyrics so people can continue to practice and continue on, which is very creative. But the response I see coming back from all the comments that they make is their level of appreciation, their level of connectivity, their level of enjoyment, their level of, uh, they anticipate looking forward to coming, they anticipate looking to see what's coming up next. Um, so that's been incredibly positive for a range of group of people that I've found. Um, can yeah. I give you one more example? Please do. Now, this one's come out a little bit out of you, Fergal, uh, might I say. Um, the, uh, one of your clients, in fact, from the Carrington Health Hall Turning Point has been referred to us because we've started a community boat building group. And um, I've found a number of gentlemen, it's not a, it's not a men's shed as such, but um, I've found a group of men who are extremely passionate about boat building. And um, so we've been able to get one of your clients being referred to us, and he's been coming regular basis um, and connecting with a bunch of guys uh, working on a boat together, um, sanding, painting, polishing, crafting, whatever, but at the same time rubbing shoulders with these other guys, just talking about life, whatever those conversations that come up, um, and just to encourage him. Now, this particular person, because of uh, his a level of suffering and what's going on in his life with regard to substance abuse, he doesn't have a whole lot of uh, connections now. He's got his mum and dad. Um, but he's lost a lot of his friends because of, uh, you know, what's uh, unfolded in his life. Within this group now, he's found real connection. It's been purposeful. It's been really joyful. And now I, I myself, I maintain a weekly connection with him, even if it's by a phone call. So that I'm hoping is the start of something that we can gradually build on. And uh, may I even so say that just having recently spoken to your Turning Point group, they've come forth with a whole list of different social purposeful pursuits that they think yeah. would help their patients, which I'm now working on putting together a list of folk um, who might be able to support that. And that all ranges from things like from creative writing groups to um, like uh, walking in parks to appreciate nature groups um, to a, a whole range of different things where they possibly as a part of their treatment with you, then can be then connected with a purposeful social group to perhaps add to, to, to their treatment. So that's a fabulous example of what you've described before as purposeful activity. So, you know, the creation of something of meaning and at the same time rubbing shoulders with other people, being able to shoot the breeze. I, I think that's a fabulous example. What do, you, what do you reckon, Marie? What's your thoughts on that? I think it's fantastic. I think it's, um, no, I think it's absolutely pretty spot on. Um, one of the things I wanted to say before, you know, when we were talking about suffering, one of the reasons yeah. that um, I think why I give mention to it is sometimes we have to lean into the suffering because it's in our suffering that we know something needs to change. So the, the, the opposite to, to what you've said, uh, I'm being deliberately polemical here, but the opposite to what you've said is that joy alleviates substance misuse, right? What you're saying is leaning into suffering is one of the ways of developing resilience and helping people with substance use disorders, right? What about this argument that, that joy, purposeful activity, helps people avoid or, or, or lift themselves out of substance misuse? And I, I'm, I'm, I want to describe I, to I would you, agree. Yeah, 
So maybe we're just talking about different sides of the same coin, but I want to talk to you about... I think, it, yeah, completely. Yeah. Have, you, have you heard about the Rat Park experiment? No. Ian, have you heard about the Rat Park experiment? Yes. Well, you tell us about the Rat Park experiment then. In fact, I think you might have been the one that relayed this to me. <laughs> um, fascinating. Now, now I can't give you all the uh, exact details of who ran it and what, but I think, and, yeah. and please correct me, modify me if I'm, I'm wrong, but um, I believe there were two rats that were put into a, an enclosure. Um, within that enclosure, there was basically nothing. It was just a bare room. But there were two water sources, one with normal water, and I believe the other water source was laced with a drug, like such as yeah, heroin, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So during that time, uh, those two uh, animals being in that enclosure, they gravitated towards the water that was laced with the drug. Um, yeah. Because it, it perhaps, from what I understand, just deadened the boredom, deadened the fact that they didn't have anything mm. purposeful to do. So therefore, going forward, they set up another enclosure uh, let's call the other enclosure a rat heaven. Uh, the rat heaven consisted of all different types of objects, uh, circular wheels, little enclosures, little tunnels that the rats could, you know, manoeuvre in and out and around about. The same two water uh, sources existed there too, one with water and the other one with which was laced with, with the drug. Um, what they found, the researchers, was that the two rats actually didn't go towards the water source with the drug. They went to the water source with the water because they found that all because of all of the purposeful pursuits and enjoyments that they were having, they didn't need to, to deaden the boredom, to deaden the, the feelings of, um, of hurt or whatever you want to say. So that uh, proves, I guess, uh, strongly that people, if they have purposeful pursuits in life and endeavours and can engage with society in a purposeful and viable way, it takes away the need for going down the path to uh, for substance abuse and other things. So, Marie, I mean, we were taught, you were, you were originally saying that leaning into suffering is a way of escaping substance misuse, if that's what I heard you. I mean, you know, for me, the Rat Park experiment is, a, is, a, is one of the many proofs that suggest that joy happiness, as elusive as that might be, is one of the mechanisms by which we can escape um, substance misuse. And, and I suppose happiness also it re represents resilience. It's not, it, happiness is not the, the rush that you get from a drug. It's, it's, it's that deep-seated contentment born of resilience and a right relationship with one's fellow man. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, people seem to notice that happiness is going to be this kind of euphoric thing. And I have heard about yeah. that. Um, I didn't know the title of the, um, the yeah. rap thing, but yeah. I, I'm certainly aware of it. And again, it reinforces yeah. the need for this. Um, yeah. And I think like in a lot of this, this social connectedness is actually preventative. So I think there's, you know, there's, there's multiple arms to this. I think that there, yeah. you know, there are those people who a sense of connection um, and, and, you know, we only need to look at the things like the, um, you know, the rehab centres and, and the sentence of the community, you know, I'm not going to jump in on the whole, you know, 12-step thing, but I know that I've certainly seen some oh, of those. why not? <laughs> well, no, I, I know some people have got some incredible, um, you know, connections through that. And I know some people, their connections to those groups have been the only thing that's actually kept them out of, um, yeah. out of using. So, of course, yeah. and the common denominator in that is social connection. 
Um, it is. So I, think now, that, I don't think that they work for everyone. No, absolutely I not. I don't think they work for everyone, but for those for whom it works, it works very well. Correct. So I think yeah. there's there's the preventative aspect, and and that's what I think. You know what what Ian's talking about, and I think a lot of that that rad experiment and that sort of shows that. Um, and I yeah. think there is. You know, for those who are suffering, sometimes they need to lean into their suffering to use that as a catalyst to, well, what's really, you know, if I'm going to step outside of what I'm going through, and we know this connects with motivational interviewing, we know this. Now, you mentioned motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what motivational interviewing is and how does it relate to, to uh, for instance, substance use and the management of substance use disorders? So, look, motivational interviewing, a lot of people... Um, you know, when they're using a substance, sometimes the people have, have got a, an ambivalence about, um, you know, well, what does, if I'm not using, what the heck's going to happen? And it can naturally um, evoke panic and trepidation yeah. and a whole lot of yeah. um, angst for people. So, yeah. you know, motivation. Contemplating life without the drug. Oh, it, 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 you know, and if you think about, you know, the whole thing around the, the way that substances, substance use affects the central nervous system of people, the moment, yeah. you know, sometimes people find that they're being asked, you know, challenging questions or they, they can literally get into defence of the drug use. They can get yeah. into that, you know, I'm going to defend my right to use my drug, you know, and, and tell you to, you know, go get stuff, mind your own business. And in some ways only um, digs the hole deeper because then they're, they're just in battle with themselves and, and their defence of continuing to use. So motivational yeah. is it motivational interviewing is the complete opposite of that. It's that um, it's about sort of sitting with the fact that people are often you know in stages of change. You know when we talk about the 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 model of um, now is it Prochaska and DiClemente? Is that how I pronounce it, Fergal? You would know. Well, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. The cycle of change. The cycle of change. You know, going around from pre-contemplation yeah. to contemplation and and the steps that are, yeah. are going around that. But yeah. you know, people yeah. sometimes think that they can do someone a favour by hounding at someone about all of the, you know, the reasons why they should stop and, you know, the health risks. Right. And it just digs a bigger hole yeah. and people get defensive about it and they get into rebellion and the cycle doesn't really change. So I call that the writing reflex, the desire to correct people's behaviour from by external force. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And so, Ian, have you? Oh, sorry. No, on, no, that's basically what I was just going to say. The motivational interviewing is essentially a way of, you know, sitting with people while they're in this space of deliberation until yeah. a point where the seesaw starts to swing from, you know, this is this is not okay. To, you know, I can't keep doing what I'm doing to, um, you know, listening to the complete cost of, of the lifestyle and the associated impact of that. Yeah. So, Ian, have you? Go on. I was just going to say, if I could just jump in to ask Marie something, because I find it fascinating what she's saying um, with the motivational interviewing. It's great, and I need to learn more about this. Um, but the number of folk that I have come across, Marie, over recent times, where part of them is able to say, yes, I realise the benefit and getting out and being purposeful and connecting. And then in the same breath, they'll say, it's just so tough, tough to get out of bed. I'm really struggling. Is this? Can you can you unpack that a little bit for me in terms of how may I respond to situations like that? Oh, absolutely. And you know, for a lot of our clients, you know, um, you know, I always sit there and think about what you know, what is the substance offering a person? So for me personally, and this is just something that, you know, um, 
I, I've heard from other clinicians and I've taken it on board and I don't hold it as gospel. But, you know, if someone says to me that they're drinking or someone says to me that they're using an amphetamine type based drug, I might, the first thing I'm, I'm what I'm trying to work at is what, what is that drug offering that person? Now for some people, um, you know, they've got such horrible social anxiety or they're so um, struggling. Um, and I don't know, Fergal, you might be able to relate to this and Ian, you may see this as well. Um, the, a lot of the clients that have got um, a substance abuse, um, you know, a relationship to substances, there's, there's, a, there's a questioning of where do they fit in society? Because some people who are trying to make lifestyle changes can't, they know that part of that is going to be separating from their clan, from their tribe. Mm. And that brings up grief. That brings up again, if I'm not in connection with somebody, sometimes some connection with somebody is better than no connection at all, even if it's detrimental to the person's well-being. Um, so, you know, sometimes I might think, well, okay, if they're needing to use a substance because they're so socially struggling, then for me, I might be sitting there thinking, well, they're, they're, the drug is basically trying to buffer all of their insecurities, all of their uncertainties, all of their, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to cope with the social, the social um, skills necessary. But they're so apprehensive about being accepted or being judged or feeling like they're less than that they don't know then how to how to to do the social dance because some of that has some of that's been lost. You know, the clients who have started using drugs at 15, they, they've lost, they, 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 they struggle, they feel inadequate and all of their insecurities really start screaming up. Then you put them in a social context and then they're like absolutely um, nervous. Yes. So I, for me, I tend to think about, you know, if they're working just one-on-one, -on -one, they're still starting to get that, they're tolerating um, social distress in some ways just by merely even being in your presence Ian. so Correct. and then yes. i you know even if i sit there and think if they're walking their dog and you know have they been able to engage in a conversation as someone goes to put some mail in the letterbox i always build on that because it's again it's that kind of um it's it's greater desensitization for a start um and sometimes it's just around you know creating a sense of calm and signaling a sense of safety that you know, a lot of people out there, I think the stats are is that one in three people have got some sort of issue in relation to anxiety. So I do a lot of um, psychoeducation so that I might say to someone, well, you might be doing a bit of this beautiful group work that, you know, the offerings that you're doing, Ian, and just explain that there's going to be so many other people for whatever reason may be battling with their own um, internal feelings of being an imposter, not feeling okay, feeling different, feeling inadequate. Um, Sometimes even get, it's going to sound strange, but even just the unconditional, when someone looks at their pet dog or they look at the love of their cat, um, you know, for people who've got really social social discomfort, just even to be able to embody that sense of somebody can, looks at, can look at them in an adoring way, soothes our amygdala, it calms down our anxiety response. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. I'm going to jump in there. Unconditional love. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing, Ian, going back to what you said, I, I have so many patients and you put all the work around them. You, 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 you optimize their physical health, you optimize their, their, their treatment, and they still can't get out of bed. They still can't take those first steps. It's, it's like a car when you put your foot down on the accelerator and there's no acceleration. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I share that, that 
that almost that despair in it, it's 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 very it's 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 very disheartening sometimes but marie what you're saying is just make the steps smaller is that what you're saying and, and learn and get them to love themselves look i look i tend to drive a lot of um look i use a range of techniques when i work with clients about stuff like this so i use emotional freedom technique which is a tapping technique and we know that it drops the cortisol we know it um you know, it takes away a lot of the anxiety and the um, and the trepidation. I also use things like, um, you know, like circle and, and people think it's strange, but even just circling your palm again reduces, it interrupts the centres of the brain connected with anxiety and anger. So if I can equip my, my clients with some self-soothing tools, um, skills of being mindful, having a, a rock in their hand that they can even just again get themselves out of their thoughts of people are going to think i'm stupid people are going to think that i'm dumb i'm not going to know what to say people will notice my hands shaking um sometimes i'll do education around it and like use a lot of the acceptance and commitment therapy principles by saying you know what if you can just notice that that thought is just simply a thought what if you can just notice that you know and i give the example if you were walking down the road and you see cars going up and down do you jump into their cars as a passenger and just be subjected to whatever chattering is going on with the driver who's who's driving the car and clients will go, well, absolutely not. And I'll say, so in some ways, but you're letting your, your own thoughts hijack it. You're actually letting your own thoughts of, I'm not going to be good enough. I've got no energy. I can't get out of the bed. I'm too tired. I actually just really, um, and the other example I use is the example of being on a city loop, going around and around the, the cycle, uh, this re, the, the darkness and the despair of the city loop. And I'll say something like, you know, what's going to happen if we can just incrementally incrementally move the train track? And you think about Melbourne's Metropolitan Railway, and instead of it just going around like this, you, you can start to deviate and everything just builds on the other. Mm. You know, it might be about taking one person that they feel confident with or even a, a peer support worker that they may have developed a, a connection with. Any way of just very gently infiltrating um, and eventually, you know, it's basically just that allowing their brain to say, I'm actually safe. I've sat in this chair or I've sat with this cup, cup you know, cup in my hand. I've, I, I've had some eye contact with these other people in the group. Um, and even sometimes with, with just signals of, you know, okay, when, what, what would I be needing to look in this person to tell me that they're getting to their threshold, they're starting to get up there and, and might want to bolt or might want to flee. Does that yeah, Mary, help? Yeah, Mary, yeah, I really appreciate your thoughts because um, I'm just reflecting, um, say, for instance, on this boat building program that we've got in this particular client um, that we've got engaged. And um, as part of the, the, the four hours that we had all together, it involved like morning tea and lunch, um, so which was fantastic. And we all just sat around and chatted and uh, about any issue that just came up. But I was also cognizant of the fact that there was three of us and, um, and just one of him. And, and around those sensitivities, um, how is he coping? What is he thinking? What's going on in his mind? Um, with you know, with what you in line with what you were saying, and a part of a part of me has been thinking. Well, if 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 Virgil refers patients to for to me for purposeful pursuits and the connection there, I do know that a lot of community centres and they do wonderful, you know, provide wonderful provision for activities and so forth. But often they're large groups, and they're they're pretty focused on what they're they're particularly doing. But I find this one on one. Um, where it's in a very um, 
a careful, caring environment where you can be sensitive to, to the, the needs that you have been um, you were expressing before, which I found really helpful, that the, the, the opportunity is great to develop that sense of trust and for him to take the risk of wanting to be there to connect, it'll be more ongoing as against, you know, being too overwhelming and then him not turning up again. Would you, would you agree with that approach? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's why, you know, again, sometimes when we take things back to, um, people's multiple intelligences, like some people who are so amazing with their hands, um, they're the people that, you know, might, you know, eye contact could be incredibly intimidating for those people. So anything that can still allow them to have a sense of, even if it's dual play, like, you know, you think about even when we used to, when we think about stages of, of growing up and, um, you know, that parallel play that kids used to have as part of their own socialization, sometimes even just somebody being able to do a, a part of a bigger project but know that they've been a contributor to just that one small part like if it is working on a boat um and i think you know one of the beautiful things i think you just said there ian is that sensitivity that you just spoke about is being curious what's going on in the eyes of the other what's happening for that person you know i know a lot of clients when they're in you know when they're either you know, people think that just because they've, they've come out or they've done a seven-day detox or they've done a, you know, a, um, a program or whatever it is, that the, the whole way that the brain has to reconnect and tolerate distress and tolerate stimulation is, is, a, um, is a, a, a really important thing to consider. Um, their, their tolerance for flipping into hypoarousal or hyperarousal or hypoarousal is... Um, you know, something we've really got to keep in the back of our minds. So I guess the fact that you're even curious by asking, you know, what can I be doing to send a signal of safety to somebody? You know, it could be something like, hey, listen, if you start to feel a little bit, a bit like things are a bit too much, you know, is there a little, can you give me just a little gesture that tells me, you know, you might just need to, again, come back to, send, you know, send that signal of safety. But you'd be surprised how the more people keep doing things, they're literally um, getting that sense of mastery. Yes. Yes, and and, and, and habituate habituating to the toler they're actually increasing their level of um, their distress tolerance, and their window of tolerance actually increases, and that's the beauty of the work you're doing. Mm. And and I find it fascinating too, and I think it's a fairly general, generally known thing that when when men are doing something, working away, um, that is males, that's when they start to talk. And that's, uh, you know, <laughs> and that's when they open up and then almost you can't stop them then. It's just great. And so that's where you get the opportunities to just really um, get, a, get a good idea, get a good understanding of how they're really feeling. And so that's, you know, if we can get inside their head and where their feelings are at, then hopefully that point of connection will continue to grow and grow. Mm, absolutely. So, Ian... What do you think about role modeling in this regard? And bear in mind, we, 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 have to just, uh, we have to be mindful of the time. So I just want, Ian, your, your comment, your thoughts on role modeling, and then Marie's, and then we're going to have to summarize what we've talked about so far. Sure. I'll, be, I'll try and be really brief then, Fergal. Um, <laughs> and I think maybe I've already unpacked this a little bit, but the idea of having, as an example, with the boat building program, having two or three other guys around someone who's going through these challenges in their life as role models, wow. as mentoring, as people that they can develop. I'm going to use this expression again, trustworthy relationships. You know, we've lost trust yes. in a lot of stuff. And if people can get that back into yes. their lives, I believe it will be um, a very 
a very powerful force in supporting them on their journey. Yeah, and Marie, what do you think about that? In response to role modeling? I think yeah. it's I think it's a cornerstone when we look at even the you know the principles that govern things like um, DBT. You know when we take things back to a value base and we can actually then say to somebody, you know, the the role models, what would be the qualities in somebody that you would aspire to be? The more that you can agitate that or, or stir that up in someone, um, and and know that that in some ways role models are a um, a lighthouse for people. You know, I think role models are like the north facing star. Um, and that people, you know, in moments of um, temptation or in moments of, of potentially making different choices or choices that may not serve somebody in the best way that they can, if they can recalibrate or if they can go back to a point of asking themselves, what would so-and-so do in this situation? Um, you know, who do they most admire? Um, I think that offers a, it offers an anchoring point for people to to make a different choice. So I, I'm completely role models are massive out there for people. What what does a lack of role model cause? I mean, you, you, does it cause harm in the people that you look after? Oh, if there's if they can't, you know, sometimes when we're you know even especially when I would do family therapy type work, it's about highlighting who has been a you know, who has been a, a, a keeper or a, a holder of something different? Who was a person who could instill a sense of safety? Who was someone who had that nurturing um, presencing component? I think there's, when, when, the, when you're really looking upstream, and this is where even if people have grown up in some of the most turbulent situations, I might even have to go as far as saying, if it wasn't somebody in your own family, who was a mentor? Who was somebody else's parent that you looked to and thought, they, they've got it. They've got it down pat. They're nailed. They know, you know, who, if it's not a trusted doctor, if it wasn't a doctor, was it an integration aid worker? Was it a teacher? Who was it that offered a sense of this is what a different form of normal looks like? And usually you can build on it from there because if they don't have that sense of, and, and I've even had to see people use um, even fictitious people, you know, shows off TV. The Brady Bunch is a classic example. People have had to default to, you know, the mother on that show as the, as just oh, that, if I was to lean into what that person would look like, that's what they'd offer. It would be those qualities. It would be that compassion. It'd be that nurturing. It'd be that unconditional support, unconditional love. So yeah, you're right. Without that, sure. there's no anchor. Mm. Yeah. And and so Marie and I, I'm, Ian, I'm going to ask you this question as well. So just prepare your answer. But Marie, we, we've we've had a wide-ranging discourse. What's the most the most important point that you'd like people to remember from our chat? Maybe one or two points. How would you summarize what you, what your feelings and views are on our discussion? Look, I think I think there is a lot more stuff that 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 joins us in. There's more of the, more similarity between a lot of people than there is dissimilarity. I think people sometimes use the perception that they are so different. However, you'd know this. You know, and, and Ian, you probably know this, Virgil. How many times do people sit in your in your chair and say that they feel different, they don't feel like they belong, they feel like they're a fraud, they feel like they're, you know, all of these, you know, as I said, we refer to as post imposter syndromes. How many of these people, what they don't realise, that if you just had other people sitting in the chair and then push play, their stories are yeah. so similar. People seem to think that they are so not the same when, in fact, I think a lot of people... I think we're more com we've got more similarity than we've got dis you know dissimilarity. Yeah. I, I think personally, and and people. So what you're alluding to is a, 
Yeah. What you're alluding to is a sense of belonging. I think people's perception that they don't belong because we've got these superficial, yeah. you know, and I don't think it, look, this is another topic for another conversation, but I, I do believe that yeah. Facebook and all these other social medias, when they're used in the right way, can be amazing. I think what it's also done yeah. is create so much social comparison that people don't think they're adequate, that they think that they're somehow going, that they're not, not, they're not able to meet the grade, when in fact, there is more people meeting the grade because of the similarity of experiences than differences. Uh, and Ian, what about you? What's, how would you summarise your views on what we've discussed so far? Um, a, a great question, Fergal. Um, in some ways, I refer a bit to Renee Brown and her, her big push on um, the power of vulnerability. Um, that has a really big impact on the work that I did because I find myself so often in situations where I'm thinking, what do I do? What do I do? But um, I find that I'm just making myself available and being there to accompany people during you know, challenging times. I think the, the expression of reaching out, particularly during this current time with the coronavirus, I think that for those of us who are well-equipped well and feel well-resourced with things, um, to have that, um, that, that desire to reach out to people, just to ask them that simple question, are you okay? How are you traveling between one and 10? And I, I think that despite all the, the, the challenges we're facing during this time, there are many other things that are opening with people communicating. I mean, even as an example, I know the time's short, but my mother's uh, 91 and uh, she just lives locally at a, a retirement village. I, can, I can't, when I go to visit her now, we, we sit out in the backyard, okay, with a couple of metres apart. But what I'm finding, I've just taught mum recently how to FaceTime. Um, and she feels like um, that when we do a FaceTime now, it's the first time she's learned how to do it. It was only yesterday. She feels like that we're having actually a, a visit with each other. So it's just finding creative ways of continuing to connect with people to just bring about a greater sense of community during challenging times. You know, our, our need to get back to community, our need to get back. In fact, I've just, I'm just doing a, I've done a vlog this morning about what I think is really happening now is we've now got this notion of time and we don't know what to do with it. For the first time, we're not, you know, scheduling dinner dates. We're not scheduling um, catch-ups with people, you know, in the way that we would normally. We don't have parents drive their kids here, there and every activity scheduling like crazy. And I think what's really happening now is we've got, We've got this notion of time and then what the heck do we do with that? Mm. Um, and I think it's actually yeah. panicking people because it's like, you, you know, we've taken this chunk of stuff out. We've often yearned so desperately to have a different relationship with time and now it's like, what the heck are we doing with it? Um, and, but yeah, that, the stuff that you're doing, like, honestly, if there was more availability of what you're doing to compliment people who might not be able to necessarily go into an actual rehab, you know, you think about programs that are six months, 12 months long, you know, yes. I think there's, it, they've got their merit, but at some point people need to come back into the communities in which they've lived. It's just, unfortunately, we've got this coronavirus that's kind of just put a, a bit of a hold to things, but in the background, um, I'm still doing, being able to do still lots of work because, as you, and you were leaning towards this a little bit before, Marie, these times, I mean, I just heard a, a report the other, this morning about the level of uh, family violence that's escalated because of people being crammed in their homes. But holding that thought just there, on the other side of the coin, the amount of innovation that's going on, I mean, now I'm finding 
my morning's being taken up with Zoom meetings, <laughs> you know, and I'm connecting with all these different people at different levels. Um, so, you know, one door shuts, another door opens, and it's just about trying to exploit the good opportunities to the best of their ability, despite all the difficulties that we're having at the moment. Even like this today, it's been cathartic in my mind to have this conversation. Uh, you know, where it goes, what happens? I don't, you know, uh, you know I guess that's gonna be up to Virgil and, and, and Tony, but it's been great. I mean, it's another connection I've made with you, Marie, and I would like mm. to think that I can catch up with you again because I, I yeah. still want to get inside your head and pick your brains more because I think you could be really helpful to the way I conduct my affairs and what I do each day. So it's been great. Yeah, I've actually been just doing some training on, um, you know, facilitating women's circles. And there's now what I'm really hearing from that is that there's, um, there is a push for, for males um, circles as well, and they can be done via Zoom as well. So even just some of the activities, um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of wording you want to use it. I mean, it's sad that we've had to, you know, for guys to even get together, they have to use metaphors of like cars getting serviced and all this other sort of <laughs> health promotion activities. Um, but yeah, I'm really, uh, you know, there's so many different activities that I've got that, you know, even, um, I mean, I'm an expressive therapist and, and trained in art therapy, but, you know, even just even bringing guys together, um, you know, even if it's over the internet where people can just do some of these different, you know, practices is, is fantastic. But yeah, I'm absolutely, you know, and if there's anything that I can um, can do or, or even any skills that I can show you that you can then take out to these people because, as I said, people can really, how many times do people, they start feeling inadequate, they start thinking something's wrong, then they get onto Google, then all of a sudden they've self-diagnosed themselves with all of this damn pathology, whereas they could be out there socialising and their whole neural pathways go down a completely different a different stream, which is what we yes. want. Exactly. We, we, we want health. We don't want we don't want pathology. That's it for today's show. A big thanks to Maria and Ian. If you are watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified of new episodes. And if you want to leave any comments, leave them below or email us. Thank you for watching and see you next time. Thank you.